Section 68 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter 18, Part 2. The Church and Reform by R. V. Lawrence. The Inquisition, which was set up in Rome in 1542 by the bull Lyset Initio, was not new, but the adaptation of an old organization to the changed conditions of the times. The tendency to persecute appeared in the Church in very early days, but its lawfulness was always challenged, and it was not until the 11th and 12th centuries that any deliberate attempt was made to persecute systematically. A wave of heresy then passed over Western Europe. Dualism and Manichaeism, always prevalent in the East, obtained a firm footing in the West, and the south of France became their stronghold. The Church became alarmed at the spread of ideas which not only were subversive of Christian faith, but threatened the foundations of society and morals. The crusading spirit was diverted from the infidel to the heretic. The Albigensian crusade achieved its purpose. But something more was needed than an occasional holy war upon heresy. The work was taken in hand at first by the new Episcopal courts, which were beginning to administer the recently codified canon law in every diocese. But their action was spasmodic, and in the thirteenth century their efforts were reinforced by a papal inquisition entrusted to the Dominican and Franciscan orders. It was regulated by the papal legates, and its authority was enforced by provincial councils. The papacy, however, never had complete control of it and side by side with it the old Episcopal Inquisition went on. The Episcopate viewed the Papal Inquisition with jealousy, and in the fourteenth century succeeded to some extent in limiting its powers. In the fifteenth century its work was done and its activity ceased. It had stamped out heresy in Europe at an awful expenditure of human life, and at the cost of a complete perversion of the spirit of Christianity. At the moment, however, when it was about to disappear, Spain asked for its introduction into that country. The problem of the Moors and the Jews prompted the request, and on November 1st, 1477, Sixtus IV authorized Ferdinand and Isabella to set up the Inquisition in their states. The papacy consented with reluctance, and both Sixtus IV and Innocent VIII reserved a right of appeal to the Holy See. But they were obliged to give way and by a brief of August 23, 1497, Alexander VI finally abandoned the claim. The Spanish Inquisition thus, though founded by Rome, did not remain under its direct control. The Spanish monarchy was responsible for it and used it as an instrument of state, though at times the terrific engine which it had created got beyond its control. The thoroughness with which Torquemada did his work achieved its object and when Ximenes became chief inquisitor in 1507 the fierceness of persecution to some extent relaxed it was this third of spanish form of the inquisition the success of which suggested to carafa the setting up of an inquisition in rome to supervise the whole church the idea was warmly supported by ignatius loyola and accordingly paul the third by a bull of july twenty first fifteen forty two set up the holy office of the universal church six cardinals were appointed commissioners and were given powers as inquisitors in matters of faith on both sides of the alps 
the papacy thus provided itself with a centralized machinery which enabled it to supervise the measures taken for checking the spread of the new opinions pius the fourth and pius the fifth extended the powers of the inquisition and its organization reached its most developed form under sixtus v who by the bull immensa remodeled it along with the other roman congregations the number of cardinals composing it was increased to twelve and there were in addition a commissary an assessor and a body of consultors who were chosen from among canonists and theologians besides these officials there were numerous qualificators who gave their opinion on questions submitted to them there were also an advocate charged with the defense of accused persons and other subordinates the roman inquisition not only proceeded against any persons directly related to it but also heard appeals from the sentences of the courts of the inquisition in other localities inquisitors were in addition sent by it to any place where they appeared to be needed though the sphere of active work of the roman inquisition was confined to italy it achieved the purpose not only of stamping out protestantism in the peninsula but of bringing back the old intolerant spirit into the government of the church conciliation and confessions of failure could not go hand in hand with the inquisition the failure of contarini at ratisbon in fifteen forty one followed by the establishment of the inquisition in fifteen forty two marks the active beginning of the counter-reformation in its narrower sense a restoration of catholicism by violence and irresistible force was beginning which was driving the party of conciliation from the field and rendering all their endeavors useless the proposals of the peacemakers were belied by the actions of the inquisition the society of jesus was the second of the two great organizations which rose up to save the tottering church what the papal inquisition did for italy the society of jesus did for the catholic church throughout the world where force could not be used persuasion and the subtler forms of influence were possible and in the society of jesus the most powerful missionary organization the world has ever seen was placed at the disposal of the papacy with rapidity little short of marvelous the society spread not only throughout europe but to china and the indies and became one of the chief powers in the councils of the church jesuit fathers molded to a considerable extent the dogmatic decrees at trent the emergence of the papacy from the ordeal of the council with its prerogative increased rather than diminished was largely due to their efforts don inigo lopez de recalde their founder was born in fourteen ninety one at the castle of loyola in guipascoa he served as a page at the court of ferdinand of aragon and his youth and early manhood were devoted to the profession of arms a severe wound which he received at the siege of pampeluna in fifteen twenty one lamed him for life during a long and painful period of convalescence there fell into his hands several books dealing with the life of christ and the heroic deeds of the saints so deep an impression was made upon his mind that he determined to devote himself entirely to the service of god and transfer his allegiance from an earthly to a heavenly army restored to health early in fifteen twenty two he set out as a knight-errant of christ and the virgin we hear of him first at montserrat at a shrine of the virgin famous throughout spain but his stay here was short and we next find him at manresa not far from montserrat at manresa according to the traditional story ignatius had his celebrated vision lasting for eight days 
in which the plan of his society was revealed to him and the method which he worked out in his spiritual exercises there is reason to believe however that the evolution of his great idea was a very gradual process and that he owed more to others than his disciples have been usually willing to admit at any rate we know for certain that he left manresa early in fifteen twenty three as a pilgrim for the holy land he had already conceived the idea of founding a great society for the service of the church but its exact nature was not yet at all clear in his mind ignatius had little knowledge of the great world and its needs to a spaniard war with the infidel was an obvious idea and it is not surprising that the reconquest of jerusalem should occur to him at the first as the most laudable object for his society his stay at jerusalem was not however very successful a reckless enthusiast might cause trouble amidst a mohammed population and ignatius was refused permission to remain in jerusalem and returned to venice in fifteen twenty four but the long journey had left its mark on his mind he perceived his ignorance of the world and his lack of education and he determined to do his best to remedy these defects from fifteen twenty four to fifteen twenty eight he studied at the universities of barcelona alcala and salamanca and in fifteen twenty eight he proceeded to the university of paris it has been suggested that the fear of the inquisition prompted him to this step for twice once at alsac and once at salamanca he had fallen under its suspicion and narrowly escaped condemnation at paris ignatius proceeded more cautiously and the seven years of his stay there marked the crisis of his life when the visionary and enthusiast developed into an organizer and leader of men patiently and quietly accepting no rebuff he gathered round him one by one a little band whom he had infected with his enthusiasm pierre lefebvre a savoyard was his first disciple through him he obtained an influence over francis xavier the future apostle of the indies though he was no easy conquest diego jacobus lanus and alfonso salmeron both spaniards were the next converts and nicholas bobadilla and simon rodriguez soon followed on august fifteenth fifteen thirty four the seven of them heard mass and received the communion in the church at montmartre and made a vow of poverty and chastity they also solemnly bound themselves to go to jerusalem for the glory of god when they had finished their courses at the university but if it was found impossible to do so within a year they agreed to throw themselves at the feet of the holy father and place themselves absolutely at his disposal accordingly in fifteen thirty seven they left paris and went to venice with the object of reaching the holy land on the eve of their leaving paris lefebvre had gained three fresh recruits claude leger jean coger and pasquier bruet when ignatius who had meanwhile visited spain rejoined his companions the little band had thus increased to ten they however found it impossible to proceed to jerusalem in consequence of the war with the turks and therefore in accordance with their vow determined to offer their services to the pope it was at venice that carafa and ignatius met and it is probable that it was carafa's influence which brought home to ignatius that there was more important work for him and his disciples nearer home the infidel was at the time less of a danger to the church than the heretic 
and just as in the middle ages the transition from a crusade against the one to a crusade against the other was easy so now it was not difficult to persuade ignatius that his true mission was the extirpation of protestantism and the expulsion of half-hearted brethren carafa would have wished ignatius and his disciples to unite themselves to his favorite order of theatines but to this ignatius would in no way consent he felt his own peculiar mission vividly and what were to be the characteristic features of his institute were rapidly taking shape in his mind though displeased by the refusal of ignatius to conform to his wishes carafa none the less gave him every encouragement carafa's later dislike of the society when he was pope was due to deeper causes than ignatius refusal to throw in his lot with him the diplomatic skill which had marked ignatius ever since he left spain in fifteen twenty eight displayed itself in the caution with which he approached the holy see accompanied by lefebvre and lainez he determined to visit rome leaving his other companions to carry on in northern italy the work of preaching and teaching and the gathering of fresh disciples which they had begun in venice he felt it was necessary to survey the ground at rome before attempting to settle there on his journey ignatius had a vision in a little church not far from rome which shows that the worldly wisdom which he had acquired had not dimmed his sense of a divine mission god appeared to him in this wayside sanctuary and he heard a voice saying ego vomus romai propitus ero it was october fifteen thirty nine when the three enthusiasts reached rome reform was in the air and though as we have seen little was done to carry out the suggestions of the concilium de emeranda ecclesia yet paul was ready to give every encouragement to any scheme for the improvement of the church which did not call for any great self-denial on the part of the papacy itself ignatius and his companions were accordingly favorably received and authorized to preach a reform of manners in rome the door thus being opened ignatius felt that the time had come to summon his other disciples to join him at easter fifteen thirty eight the little band were again united and the work which they had begun in northern italy was extended to rome contarini as well as carafa welcomed new allies and became their protector it only remained for ignatius and his friends to draw up a definite rule and to obtain confirmation from the pope a supplication was accordingly drawn up indicating the objects and constitutions of their proposed society their petition was referred to a committee of three cardinals with guidiccioni at its head who at first reported unfavorably on the scheme the needs of the day required the reform or suppression of existing religious orders rather than the creation of new ignatius was however not discouraged he worked on and at length on september twenty seventh fifteen forty the opposition was overcome and by the bull regimini militantes ecclesiae the society of jesus was founded the bull contained a recitation of the petition of ignatius and his companions and it is the only certain authority in our possession from which we can learn the nature of his plan in its early form the first thing which strikes the reader is that while the objects of the society are clearly indicated its constitution is only vaguely outlined its members are to bear arms in the service of christ and of the roman pontiff his vicar to whom they are to take a special vow of obedience they are to be the militia of the holy see 
devoting themselves to service whenever it may direct as preachers and directors of consciences they are to work for the propagation of the faith and above all by means of the education of the young they are to take the vows of poverty and chastity and obedience to the general whom they set over themselves in all things which concern the observation of their rule the power granted to the general is unprecedented in its extent the right of command belongs to him entirely he is to decide for each his vocation and define his work this is the only indication in the bull of the elaborate hierarchy of degrees which appears in the later constitution of the society at the same time this apparently absolute power granted to the general is limited by the fact that in certain cases he is to take the advice of his council which is to consist in important matters of the greater part of the society while in affairs of less moment those members who happen to be in his immediate neighborhood alone need be consulted here and in the insistence of a period of probation before admission to the society there is an apparent approximation to the constitutions of the older religious orders in which however much stress might be laid on the duty of obedience to authority that authority was always bound to act in a canonical and constitutional way if then the scheme laid before paul the third contained the germ from which the matured constitution of the society was to grow yet there were also present in its elements which disguised the extent to which the society was a new departure the language of ignatius petition is not inconsistent in its main features with the future constitution of the society but it did not necessarily imply it the unique nature of the new organization was not fully realized by the officials of the roman court the limitation of the number of members to sixty which was inserted in the bull may however show that they did not intend it to grow to unmanageable size until its tendencies revealed themselves more clearly on april fourth fifteen forty one six out of the original ten members of the society who were then in rome ignatius lainez salmeron leger pasquier bruet and coder met to elect their general the four who were absent with the exception of bobadilla had sent their votes in writing ignatius was unanimously elected he however refused the honor but he was again elected on april seventh at last on april seventeenth he gave way and on april twenty ninth he received the vows of his companions at the church of san volformere thus began the generalate of ignatius which lasted until his death on july thirty first fifteen fifty six the fame of the new order soon spread throughout the catholic world and many fresh members were admitted to its ranks a second bull ariundum nobis was obtained from paul the third dated march fourteenth fifteen forty three which repealed the clause of the former bull limiting the number of members to sixty meanwhile ignatius continued to work at the constitutions and the experience which he gained during the first years of the society's existence no doubt unconsciously modified his scheme for its government the great increase in the number of members an increase which he himself did not altogether welcome with the consequent mixture of heterogeneous elements in the society made it advisable to strengthen the authority of the general and to weaken still further those checks on his power 
which appear in the petition of 1540. In no other way could the unity of the action of the society be preserved. Judging from the part played after the death of Ignatius by Lainez, it is extremely probable that this development was largely due to his influence. However this may be, the change undoubtedly took place, and by a bull of Paul III of October 18, 1549, Lysit debitum pastoralis officii, and by a bull of Julius III on July 21, 1550, episcopat pastoris officii, the power of the General's Council was still further limited, and other changes were made in the original plan. It is clear from the language of both these bulls that, though further drafts of the constitutions had been laid before the papal authorities, Ignatius had not yet reduced them to their final form. From the bull of Julius III, it is evident that the system of a series of degrees in the society was already shaping itself but that the government of the society had not yet become the system of absolutism it afterwards became. Julius III, 1550-55, was kindly disposed towards Ignatius, and, during his pontificate, the Collegium Romanum and the Collegium Germanicum were set up in home, to both of which he granted an annual subsidy. His successor, Marcellus II, the Cardinal of Santa Croce, had been one of the legates at Trent, it was due to his influence that Lainez and Salmeron were present at the council as the theologians of the Pope. With Marcellus, the Counter-Reformation ascended the papal throne, and the Jesuits appeared about to become the predominant influence in the Roman court. But he died three weeks after his election, and was succeeded by Carafa, who took the title of Paul IV. The new Pope immediately displayed hostility to the order, a domiciliary visit was paid to the Jesu, and a search made for arms. Paul's hostility to Spain made him suspect a body which had such close relations with that country. He, however, employed Lainez in connection with his schemes for reform, and it was only after the death of Ignatius that he interfered in the eternal affairs of the society. Lainez was elected vicar-general on August 3, 1556, to administer the affairs of the society, until the congregation could assemble to elect a new general, and to approve the constitutions which Ignatius had left. For various reasons, the meeting of the general congregation seems to have been delayed, and Lainez spent the time in preparing a final edition of the Institute for Submission for its approval. Dissensions, meanwhile, broke out. Lainez was accused of purposely deferring the meeting of the general congregation in his own interest, Bobadilla, Rodriguez, and Pasquier Bruet were the leaders of the opposition. They appealed to the Pope against the arbitrary conduct of the Vicar General, and requested that the government of the Society, during the interim, might rest with the Council of the Society. The Pope then called upon Lainez to bring before him the constitutions and rules of the Society. Cardinal Carpi was appointed to inquire into the matter. His report recommended the confirmation of Lainez as vicar-general, but advised that in the future he should be obliged to consult the council. Lainez, however, managed to obtain from the Pope a second inquiry, which was conducted by Cardinal Gisleri, the future Pius V. It is not clear what the exact result of this second inquiry was, but Lainez skillfully managed to divide the opposition and paralyze its efforts. 
At length, on June 19, 1558, the general congregation met, and July 2nd was appointed for the election of the new general. Twenty fathers were present. Cardinal Pacheco superintended the election by order of the Pope, and Lainez was elected by thirteen votes out of twenty. The assembly then proceeded to approve the constitutions in the form they were presented to it by Lainez. Lainez had apparently won a great triumph. He had quelled the opposition to his authority. He had persuaded the assembly to accept the Latin version of Politico of Ignatius Institute, by which the absolute power of the general was secured. But he had reckoned without the Pope. When Paul IV heard that the general congregation had confirmed the constitutions of the society without consulting him, and were about to adjourn, he sent Cardinal Pacheco to demand the insertion of two alterations in the rule. In the first place, the Jesuits were to be bound to recite the offices of the church in choir, as other religious orders were bound to do. And, in the second place, the office of general was to be for three years only, and not for life. Paul IV evidently feared the power which the constitutions of the society would give to an able man to wield as he thought fit. The society might become an imperium in imperio. The black pope might become a dangerous power behind the throne. If we read the story in the light of the later history of the society, this is not an improbable interpretation of the action of Paul IV. Lainez saw there was nothing to do but submit. The general congregation bowed to the wishes of the Holy Father and dispersed. The two alterations of the rule were not incorporated in it, but are printed as an appendix to the edition published at Rome in December 1558. Lainez could do nothing but wait for better times. They were not long in coming. On August 18, 1559, Paul IV died and was succeeded by Pius IV, who did not share his predecessor's dislike of the order. Lainez seized a favorable opportunity of bringing before the society the question whether a mere informal order of a pope was binding on them. But they considered it better to bring the matter directly before Pius IV, who revoked the order of his predecessor, so far as that was necessary. The papacy thus gave way in its first struggle with the society, which was to be so often more a master than a servant. It has been necessary to describe at considerable length the early history of the government of the society, in order to show how gradually it revealed its true nature to the world, and that absolutism did not triumph without considerable opposition in the society itself. The new institution, however, from its very beginning, was the expression of the principle of blind obedience to authority. Other orders had inculcated it as a virtue, but none had provided so searching a discipline by which complete ascendancy could be attained over its disciples. Moreover, its purpose was not merely to produce Christian humility and the spirit of self-denial in the individual. It was to make each member a ready instrument for the purposes of the society in its warfare with the world. A practical object was always the end in view, the triumph of the church over hostile forces, the conquest of the host of Satan, whatever form they might assume. A perpetual warfare was to be waged, and success could only be obtained by faithful obedience to orders. The theory of this discipline is developed in the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, 
a work of genius in devotional literature. Though it owes its form to a considerable extent to the Exercitatorio de la Vida Espiritual of Dom Garcia de Cisneros, the Benedictine abbot of Montserrat, published in 1500, which Ignatius no doubt found in use at the convent of Montserrat during his stay there, and to the writings of mystics such as Gerard Zerbold of Zupfen and Mobimus Johannes Monobar, members of the Brotherhood of the Common Life, which he probably met with during his stay in Paris. Yet it is no mere compilation. The spirit which breathes through its pages differs from that which distinguishes most mystical writings, in that the absorption of the soul in God is not to be the end of action, but the source of inspiration for further work. The moral paralysis of pantheism, the danger of all mystics, is avoided. According to the plan of the work, the meditations are divided into four main divisions or weeks. In the first period, the course of the meditations is conducted so as to produce in the neophyte a kind of hypnotism, a passive state in which he will be ready to receive the impressions that it is desired to make upon him. In the second week, the glories of the heavenly king and the privileges of his service are set before the disciple. The armies of Christ and Satan are contrasted, and the demands that God makes upon men are set forth. The third and fourth weeks are devoted to meditation upon the sacred story, the life and passion of Christ, and the enormity of human sin. And finally, the eternal joys of heaven are set before the disciple. To gain them, he must give up liberty and the freedom of thinking for himself. Absolute obedience to the bride of Christ, the church, its doctrines, and its life is the only way of salvation. Such was the ideal which Ignatius set before the world in the spiritual exercises, and its spirit was faithfully reproduced in his society. The spiritual exercises became the Bible of the order and molded its religious life. The novice on admission was trained in its method. He lost his personality to find it again only in the society. He himself was but raw material for the society to mold as it would. All his faculties were to be developed, but the initiative was never left to him. The life of the society was a life of mutual supervision and subordination. That there were diversities of gifts was fully recognized, but no man might be the judge of his own capabilities. The society, through its general and those appointed by him, apportioned to each his work. The novices were distinguished according as they were selected for the priesthood or for the secular duties, while those whose vocation was not yet clear formed a separate class called indifference. After a novitiate of two years, promotion was given to the grade of scholastics. Those who belonged to this class spent some five years in the study of arts, and then acted themselves as teachers of junior classes for a similar period. The study of theology followed for four or five years, and then admission might be given to the rank of spiritual coadjutors. Others, however, were confined to the rank of temporal coadjutors. They were employed in the service of the society and ministered to its needs, and may be compared to the lay brethren of other orders. The great majority of members of the society never passed beyond the rank of spiritual coadjutor. They took part in all the missionary work of the society in preaching and teaching. The heads of its colleges and residences were taken from this class, 
but they had no share in the government of the society, which was confined to the professed of the four vows, who were the society in the strictest sense of the word. Besides the three ordinary vows, they took one of special allegiance to the Pope, undertaking to go whitherso however he might order. The higher offices of the society were confined to them. Their number was always small in comparison with the total membership of the society, and at the death of Ignatius they only numbered thirty-five. There was also a small class called the professed of the three vows, which only differed from that of the spiritual coadjutors in that the vows were taken in a more solemn way. It was reserved for those who were admitted into the society for exceptional purposes. At the head of this elaborate hierarchy stood the general. His power was absolute so far as the ordinary affairs of the society were concerned, but he could not alter its constitution except with the consent of the general congregation. An intricate system of checks and counterchecks guarded against any part of the huge machine getting beyond his control, a system to which some extent he was also subject. Six assistants were appointed to keep a watch upon him, and the possibility of his deposition was provided for. Espionage and delation permeated the whole society. Absolute as his authority was, the general felt that in the society there was a great impersonal force behind him, which prevented him from departing from the spirit of the founder. Admirably fitted as such an organization was, with its combination of adaptability and stability, to carry on the work of the society with the least possible friction, yet it was inevitable that the influx of able men into the society should lead to a variety of ideas. The intended enmity of thought, as well as action, could only be partially enforced, and the abler minds could not be made to think alike. A considerable Spanish opposition arose in the society, which criticized what it thought to be certain evil tendencies in the body. Mariana wrote a work on the defects of the order, and the theory of morals, which Pascal criticized, did not become prevalent in the society without a struggle. But in its first and golden age, such division as there was did not weaken to any appreciable extent its unity of action and it offered an unbroken front to the enemies of the church. The spread of the society's organization and the ubiquity of its members in the first years of its existence were remarkable. The Latin countries, Italy, Spain, and Portugal, were soon covered with the network of its institutions, and Jesuit fathers became an influence in the councils of princes. North of the Alps, progress was less rapid, in southern Germany and Austria a foothold was obtained, but it was not until after the final dissolution of the Council of Trent that much progress was made there. In France, considerable opposition had to be overcome before the society could obtain an entry at all, and its afterwards famous College of Clermont long lived a precarious existence. Candid critics in the church were not wanting. Melchior Cano called the Jesuits the precursors of Antichrist, and St. Carlo Baremo, in his later years, viewed with suspicion the power and tendencies of the society. Great as their importance became, almost immediately after their foundation, in the councils of the Church, their missionary influence, and at any rate outside the Latin countries, is commonly antedated. 
their educational system which was a great advance on anything which had gone before was only gradually developed and by means of it their greatest services to the church were rendered during the years in which the council of trent sat and in those immediately preceding it was the inquisition which was the most potent weapon in the hands of the papacy the jesuits rendered yeoman service at the council itself and their day came when it was brought to a successful conclusion end of section sixty eight